Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 91. I'm in Taipei. It's the capital city of Taiwan. I left Jakarta a little over a week ago now. It's been pretty rainy here, so I have spent a lot of time eating, eating my way all throughout the greater Taipei area. It's funny because no matter where I go in the world, if I Tell my buddy Greg, who does the Food and Footprints blog, he'll tell me, oh man, you got to eat here, 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 and here. Like literally anywhere in the world that I'm going. So I mentioned, hey, I'm going to Taipei. It's like, oh man, check out the vlog series that we did. And he's, he's usually right. So I've hit a bunch of night markets. The night market uh, culture is really strong here. One of the specialties that I think you should try if you come to Taipei is stinky tofu. There are a lot of people that say like, oh, durian smells really bad. I love durian. So yeah, it's a strong scent, but sort of the reward is definitely worth the risk. Stinky stinky tofu, I think smells worse than durian. And the payoff's okay. I mean, I like tofu. Stinky tofu is really, really strong. But there's so much good food here. Uh, Pork rice is another sort of like national dish. The bao here are unbelievable. There's a place that I think is literally called traditional Taiwanese snack. And there's a huge line out front just to get the, just to get the takeout. The, the line to sit there is even longer. So good though. I had the best sushi of my life here. The Japanese influence is really strong, you know, based on the proximity of Taiwan to Japan. So there's a lot of really good Japanese food. And there's this big fish market where you can go and actually buy fresh fish that they have in tanks and giant crab and eel and all sorts of good stuff from the ocean. And then they also have, I think, six restaurant type of, you know, places to buy food within the um, market. And I went there and I got sushi and sake and Japanese beers and it was freaking awesome, man. So food here is great. It looks like I've got a couple sunny days coming up and I'm really excited about that because there's all sorts of stuff to the to the north along the north coast and um, down the west coast of the country too. So some of those things are day trips and some of them are like like weekend trips outside of Taipei that I'm excited to check out. There's a strong music culture here as well. And my guest today, who's Joe Henley, he plays in some metal bands himself. He's from Canada and he came here straight out of journalism school. He'll get into his whole story but he does freelance journalism. Some of that is about music. Uh, Some of it's about the uh, drug trade and drug war in the Philippines. We talked about a story that he did about bare knuckle fighting in Myanmar. He's traveled to Cuba. I think this weekend he said he's going to Thailand. So he's been all over the place doing these really interesting stories. I'm not going to spoil any of them because we talk about them here and they're fascinating like I said, he also plays in a band. He writes about music. He's done scripts for um, documentaries and for TV. Really talented, interesting guy with a really cool story and really cool stories to share. So check out the show notes for this episode and you will find a link to Amazon to buy his most recent novel, 
and a link to his website where you can go and you can check out all the different avenues that he's involved in. As always, I'll do a book giveaway. Uh, I can do it straight from Amazon, from the road. So very simply when I do these, if you're interested in getting uh, one of Joe's novels, just send me an email at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. Just say hello, I'm interested in it, and tell me like why you want it. And if there's a bunch of emails, then I'll pick maybe a few that I think are best, you know, somewhere like three to five, and I'll send you guys a book. So again, that's The Voyages of Tim Vetter if you're interested in having um, one of Joe's books, and I will send that to you maybe. If you can support The Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, almost forgot my own name there. If you can support financially, that would be amazing. You can do so on Patreon. It is patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. That is a subscription-based service where you pay monthly, and that will keep these stories coming, the education, and the episodes from around the world. If you can't support financially, I understand there are much better causes to give your money to. You can still support by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes or the podcast application that you use most often. That actually goes a really, really long way. All right, folks, enjoy this one with Joe. I really did. So first of all, man, like, just thank you. Oh, yeah, no um, problem. I know you're quite a busy guy, so I appreciate you uh, giving me some time today. No, it's my pleasure. It's funny because uh, I was, like, cramming a lot of your articles. You have a lot of a lot of stuff out there to read. I got a lot of random st- stuff, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I respect it, man. Like, you know, you're talking about you're, you're interviewing fighters in Myanmar yeah. to, you know, underground heavy music to migrant workers in in Taipei. Uh, So a lot of stuff that's like near and dear to my heart and then a lot of stuff that I think is pretty important. So uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I like to keep it interesting and uh, keep it diverse uh, just to, for selfish reasons, even to keep my own life from becoming repetitive or boring or anything. Let's crack these two. Actually, right before I came here, um, I was sitting in a cafe so like last night, I wasn't gonna, <laughs> I wasn't gonna do this today. I was like, I need to eat healthy today, uh, and try to take care of my body a little bit. Um, so I went to a cafe to mm. try to get like something a bit healthy. healthy. Um, and while I was sitting there, I was just going through some more stuff that you had, and I saw that you had been interviewed by Rolf Potts. Uh, not by Rolf Potts, actually, by somebody who wrote for his website. Oh, okay. Uh, a mute, uh, another writer out here in uh, in Asia, but yeah, for his site. Yeah. Yeah, I, I forgot about that actually. <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago. That was for my first book when it came out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Are, you, are you familiar with him? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I I had been a reader of his blog for a long time before that, so I was pretty stoked just to get you know onto his website. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even in just a you know fleeting capacity, but. Uh, no, he was one of the guys that I really looked up to when I was first trying to, to break into to writing, like when I first was trying to freelance and things like that. I saw that he had done it and apparently, you know, made a career out of it. Yeah. And enough where he was able, you know, he had property in Kansas, I think. Yep. Like he has a farm there and he was able to travel and still have his home, own home. 
And I kind of thought, like, how the hell do you do that with yeah. writing? But, you know, I thought if he can do it, presumably somebody else can do it. So, you know, why not me? I was fortunate enough that I think it was like April of last year, he was passing through New York and he was like staying at his friend's apartment in the Lower East Side. And uh, he had a book, Souvenirs, that had just come out. And he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do the podcast. And like invited me up to the hotel. I got to go to the, the book after party and everything. Wow. Like really cool, genuine guy. No, it's always cool. Like if you get to actually meet, meet those people. Yeah. You know? and, and usually it, it turns out pretty well. I mean, they say don't meet your heroes, but you know, any, anytime I've got to meet somebody like that, it's always been pretty cool. Yeah. So let's, let's maybe get, get into your story sure. and maybe uh, a condensed version of um, like how you ended up here in Taiwan. Okay. Uh, condensed version is my roommate in college, uh, university, journalism school, a uh, girl by the name of Claire O'Hara. Uh, she had lived here for a year before mm. and then she had come back to school to finish up. And at the end of our final year in Halifax, Nova Scotia, we were just kind of going around the room in the dorm saying, okay, what's everybody going everybody gonna to do next year? I said, I have no idea. She said, go to Taiwan. It's fun. I said, I like fun. <laughs> and basically three weeks after that, I was here. Whoa. Like I went back to my hometown, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, you know, said hey to the folks. They said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to Taiwan. They were pretty shocked because uh, I had never expressed any interest in doing that before. And I hadn't really told them what my plans were because I didn't have any. So with a couple hundred bucks in my pocket, after I bought the plane ticket, I just kind of came out here and said, okay, we're going to make this work or I'm going to be homeless, which almost happened, but I avoided it, uh, fortunately. That, that's the condensed version. That was yeah. the, the first time you had really traveled or had you been... I had traveled, I guess. Like, you know, with my parents, we would take a vacation every year. Mm. Um, and we had gone to places like Mexico or Dominican Republic, yeah. but, you know, at resorts. Yeah, yeah. Stayed in all-inclusive. You'd go to the beach. I mean, you could be anywhere. You're in the Dominican Republic, but you could be in Mexico. You could be in Cuba. You could be in Thailand because the only locals you see are the ones working at the hotel. Mm. And you just kind of go from the beach to the buffet, to the hotel room, and that's it. This was my first time, like, heading out completely solo, no safety net. Like I said, no money, basically. So when I got here, I had to find a job real quick. Um, and to, to avoid, you know, becoming <laughs> homeless in Asia. There's, like, you know, being homeless at home is one thing. Being homeless here, where I didn't speak any of the language yeah. at that point. That was a concern. That was, uh, <laughs> that was a bit worrying, and it, it almost... It almost happened, but uh, managed to managed to avoid it on a wing and a prayer somehow. So at that time, you didn't have any sort of like formal training or any work experience in writing yet. I had just um, gone to journalism school, so I had okay. I had that training. I, I had the degree under my belt, um, but no no work experience because I was just out of school. I was 22 years yeah. old at that point, and I, I had been writing like you know for the school paper, things like that. But other than that. No. So I just, I just came out here and said, we'll figure it out as yeah. we go. Yeah. So how long after that point? Cause that's now over 10 years ago. Yeah. That's, uh, I got here in the spring of 2005. Whoa. So that's, uh, we're going on over 13 years now. So at what point then here living in Taiwan, are you thinking I could, you know, I, I found a niche for like, uh, English-speaking writer, when did you think that you could start trying to break through like that? That took a long time, actually. Like, w when I first got here, the first job I had to take was teaching English. 
Yeah, yeah. Because that's what's available. Yeah. And the jobs that were available were out in the middle of ass crack nowhere because nobody wants to go out there. So I took a job in a really small town called Hume in Chenghua County, central Taiwan. Don't worry if you guys never heard about it, but <laughs> I was out, I, I got that job, went out there, first day on the job, realized I made a huge mistake because I don't, I don't even like teaching. Like, <laughs> I don't mind kids. I like, I actually like kids. But, you know, these are kids that have been cooped up in a classroom all day for like eight hours already. And then they come to the cram school where I'm teaching. They're just bouncing off the walls. And I don't want to discipline anybody. I just, you want to run around, run around, be a kid. But I had to do that to make some money. Did that for two months. Uh, immediately escaped as soon as I could. After the first couple paychecks, uh, came up to Taipei. Was homeless for Ta- in Taipei for one day. <laughs> just for one day. That was enough. I I'd slept on a piece of cardboard at Taipei Main Station. Whoa. At that time, they let homeless people sleep there. They don't really do that anymore. Uh, but they let them sleep inside. So I just, there was a row of homeless people sleeping there, and there was a spare piece of cardboard nobody had taken. So I just kind of bedded down there for the night. I had a job interview the next morning. <laughs> That's crazy. At a publishing company, which I ended up getting somehow, even though I slept in the same clothes that I wore to the interview. Uh, but then I got that. So that was my kind of in in Taiwan, into writing. It was just a publishing company making educational materials. But I got that job. And then I held on to that actually for seven years, uh, trying to freelance by night and mm. do that by day just to have a steady paycheck. Yeah. Uh, so it took a long time to get, like, set up. And that also had to do with the work restrictions here. Like, I needed a job to stay here. Um, you, when you come here... You can be on tourist visas, and you can do that for a while if you want. But uh, if you want to actually stay, you need a working visa. Mm. So I got a working visa through this. And then your employer kind of owns you, because if you quit the job, oh. you got to leave the country. Whoa. Now, the only way around that is if you stay continuously for five years uh, and hold a visa, a working visa, you can get permanent residency. So I managed to do that oh, wow. in spite of myself. <laughs> Uh, there was a good, healthy amount of uh, fear, I would say, uh, from <laughs> my employer towards me. They were kind of afraid of me for some reason. Not that I project that kind of image to people, but I got a, you people can't see me on the podcast, but I'm you know skinhead and got a lot of tattoos and things like that. So they kind of you know treaded lightly around me, kind of let me do my own thing, which was nice. I did my work and I did it well. Mm. But once I was done, I kind of tried to focus on my own stuff, looking over my shoulder for my boss the entire time. And did that for, yeah, did that for seven years before I finally said, okay, I think maybe I'm set up enough where I can um, go out on my own because I've got my permanent residency here, which means I'm not tied to an employer. So if I want to just go work from home, yeah, I can go and do that. But yeah, it was a long time before I finally you know, thought I can jump out of my comfort zone again yeah. for the second whatever time and go and do that. So it, it, took a, it took a long time. I just started writing. Like, that was never quite a goal of mine. Uh, I'm, like, very <laughs> proud of the fact that I was just published in uh, Tempo in Indonesia. Yeah. Which is kind of like their, like, time magazine for people in the States. Um, but, like, it was one article 
And it was writing and revisions and a lot of self-doubt and a lot of kicking myself like, oh, this is shit. No one's going to like it. No one's going to run and read it. That's writing. And shopping it around and getting like rejected, rejected, rejected. And then someone took it. Yes, here's your paycheck. All right, 60 bucks. Like, oh. Yeah, it's a kick in the nuts a lot of times. What's like your work output like? Like how often do you have to publish stuff? I got to be constantly publishing. Mm. I mean, I do a lot of different stuff. I mean, if I wanted to make a living just from journalism, I probably would have slit my wrists a long time ago because as you say, I mean, the paycheck really varies. I mean, some stuff is decently paid. You know, like some stories you might get a couple of grand from, Mm. which is great. I mean, especially if you live out here where the cost of living is not nearly as high as it is, say, um, you said you're from New York. Yeah. I mean, two grand is nothing. That's not even rent for a lot of places. Exactly. But here, two grand, um, you can live decently for yeah, a month. for sure. But then you've got the other stories where, you know, it's 150 bucks for 1,500 words, which, you know, that might take you a couple of days. I mean, 75 bucks a day, that's not even minimum wage back home. So, I mean, I have to do journalism. I've done, I do documentaries, uh, film scripts. I do textbooks. I do some wow. copywriting. I do my novels. I've done, the past year, I've done a couple of movie scripts that are being made. One one just aired a couple of weeks ago, actually. It's something on Nat Geo, right? Uh, that, that's a documentary that okay. just uh, aired, actually, two nights ago. Um, but yeah, there was a movie, a TV movie that was made here. Oh, wow. I wrote it in English. They translated it into Mandarin, and then it aired like on. A, like a drama? Yeah, a drama. Oh, cool. But like, I got to do all kinds of stuff like to to survive. Yeah. Because the paycheck often is not great and you're doing it more for love than money. But, of course, you need money <laughs> to yeah. survive because I, I don't have a trust fund or anything like that. Like, it's all, it's all on me. So every day, you know, I got to keep a solid routine, basically. Get up, seven, start writing and don't stop till I've, you know, made my daily bread, basically. Yeah. I mean, man, it's like a, it's a frequent topic on here. Uh, because I think there's a lot of people, well, it's sort of a loaded topic, but, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, my lens is the state. So a lot of blue collar jobs and global or yeah, globally are going away with the, the increase in technology, sort of like automating, you know, labor. Yeah. Uh, but then we're also in this like sort of digital age where people really want to get into careers where they're their own boss. Yes. I mean, that's sort of my dream as well. Um, but that's sort of like why I ask about the output because I think that there's sort of this illusion because like there's that weird word like influencer like there's this illusion that like like you could have a a life where you don't really work but like have all like sorts of like internet followers or something like that and that you're going to have like a consistent paycheck from that and it's going to be a really cushy life Uh, but all the people I meet who are their own bosses even when they're doing things that look really cool, like in pictures and things like that, like they work their asses off. No, man, you, you like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta move like a motherfucker to, yeah. to make a living at this. And you know, if you, you, see, you might see pictures on Instagram that look cool, but you know, behind that picture is probably like a 12 hour day. Yeah. And the whole thing, yeah, I mean, I, I still got friends and my wife does too, cause she works from home as well. We both do. And they think we're just free all the time. Yeah. They're like, hey, like, let's uh, let's get together for lunch tomorrow. You know, like, you're, like, I'm, I got the day off and you're always free. I'm like, no, I'm <laughs> fucking not. Like, I'm working, man. Like, yeah, I got to, I have to work way harder now yeah. than I did when I had a desk job, like an office job. Um, but it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel the same. It's a different feeling when I'm getting up for myself yeah. than when I'm getting up to go make some other person rich. Yeah. Or 
have more money than I do anyway. So, yeah, it's more work, but it feels better. It, it comes with its definite share of headaches and stress and sleepless nights. But at least I'm pretty much doing mostly just stuff for me, stuff that I'm interested in, stuff that I want to do. And if I want to go take off somewhere, I can take off somewhere. I don't need to ask anybody. That's a big thing for me. Yeah. That's a big plus doing this is I don't have to ask anybody. If I can go, like, may I please take a vacation? Right. That kind of thing. I hated that. That killed me every yeah. time. I was like, why do I have to ask for my time? Uh-huh. It's my time. Like, and I got me, if I'm lucky, I got 80 years. And I got to ask you, somebody I don't even like, <laughs> if I can use it. Uh, so that's like, you know, next week I'm going to Thailand, you know, for a little bit of work and a little bit of just messing around. But I don't need to ask anybody. Mm. It's, it's a beautiful thing to not have to ask permission to live my own life. You know what I mean? It also seems, man, for you, like really exciting and adventurous. Like I'm looking at the places where you've done, you know, sort of journalistic work. Um, again, uh, I think I mentioned at the outset, like bare knuckle fighting in Myanmar, yeah. uh, drug trade in the Philippines, Cuba, uh, all places with a certain amount of like political upheaval. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm drawn to that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I can't really say why. I, I, I like an element of danger, I guess. And, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say because I go to these places and I'm there for a week or two and then I leave. Uh, it's a lot different, of course, for the people that actually live there. Uh, it's, but I like to understand that side of humanity because it's, it's part of who we all are, that, that dark side. And I like to, I, I need to try to understand it because it, um, I, I, I don't know how that side works in people. That, mm. that side that makes them say, I'm going to do terrible things to get ahead. Mm. I'm going to destroy somebody's life. I'm going to take somebody's life uh, to get ahead. And I, I understand desperation. I understand poverty to a certain extent, but I've never lived it. You know, I'm a middle-class kid from right. from Saskatoon. Never wanted for anything in my life. wasn't Was never rich or anything, but never wanted for anything. So I like I I kind of need to go to these places because that's how the majority of the world actually lives. The majority of the world lives on a few dollars a day or a mm-hmm. dollar a day or less. Actually, billions of people. Our world is actually you know a very small microscopic part of the bigger picture. So when I can go to places like Cuba or, or Manila or go to Myanmar and see these different sides of, of humanity, it, it gives me a broader perspective in a selfish capacity. These people don't exist to give me perspective. I know that. But uh, it helps me to understand, and hopefully if I can write something about it, it will help other people to understand as well. Yeah, and I think that's, that's the beautiful thing about getting out into the world. Um, you know, again, like th- there's some there, there's some like big like uh, like I don't even know what you would call their job, but like Instagram travelers, right? Yeah. And I'm, influencers. Yeah, and I'll, I'll probably sounds like really bitter, uh, but like yeah, like more power to them because they've they've found a way, like they've found a way to live a pretty nice life. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's not exactly traveling. Um, like when when you're the sole focus of all the travel content that you put out. Well, I mean, what value are they adding, Yeah. really? I mean, it's, it's providing people with a temporary escape. It's like influencers are the reality TV exactly. of media. 
it's shallow, it's basically meaningless. I mean, it's somebody taking selfies in all these exotic places. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, attractive men or women right. or whoever. Beautiful people in beautiful, beautiful places. Beautiful yeah. people, beautiful <laughs> places. And if you looked at it all day, what would you have learned at the end of that day? Yeah. Nothing. Probably nothing. I'm not, I'm not saying all of them are like that, but they're not posting informative, insightful content. It's just a picture of somebody in a bikini or a bathing suit or, you know, looking dapper in front of a landmark or a beach or some sort of monument. And maybe had some kind of patronizing, inspirational quote that they right. culled from somewhere, probably not come up with themselves. And I don't know what you walk away with, but what do we, as viewers of that, walk away with at the end of that? A tinge of jealousy, perhaps? Maybe, like, oh, fuck those guys. Like, they, you know, like, jealousy, rage, but not information. Nothing we can use to make ourselves more productive members of society. I think it gives people who are kind of stuck in a rut a glimpse of a, of a life that they'd like to be living. That they would like to be living and most likely will never have. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it just, it contributes to this culture of wanting things that we can't have, don't have, never will have. And so why, why would we want them? I mean, yeah. we can form our own lives and we can, you know, you do have the power to shape your destiny, if, if you're from the same places that we're from and have the privileges that we've had, you do actually have quite a bit of power if you can make the conscious choices, you know, to, to do what, what it is that you want to do and have the courage or the stupidity to go after it um, or the arrogance or whatever you need to, uh, to push yourself. But yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not big on influencer culture, but it's, it's again, it's, it's fascinating to me that it exists. Yeah. When, when you were in Myanmar, did, were you, that was a bit recently. Uh, that was just under a year ago. Yeah. Like okay. 10, 10 months ago. So then, um, this question will be valid. Were, were you witness to any of the stuff going on with the Rohingya? No. Um, I, I was not in that part of the country. I was okay. only in Yangon and just there to, to cover the, uh, Lethwe, uh, bare knuckle boxing championship fight that was there because it was actually a Canadian guy that was fighting for the championship against, uh, oh, against a French guy. And he, and this guy was the first, uh, champion in the, in that sports 2,500 year history, uh, first foreign champion in over 2,000 years of that sport. So I was there to cover that. I, I did talk to people about it because um, I was also there for a music festival called Voice of Youth. And I actually got to perform at it with my friend's band from Japan. Oh, wow. Um, just do a couple of songs with them for fun. Uh, so I was there at the festival with a lot of, you know, like punks and rockers and rappers and things like that. And I talked, I talked about it with them and they actually would talk about it on stage, which is a big thing in Myanmar because... Um, freedom of speech yeah. now technically exists, but it's not necessarily safe yet to speak out on a lot of topics because um, the military still runs the show. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we saw, like, I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi, the, the leader of the, you know, supposed leader of the country, her hands are completely tied by the military. And so when they were... Uh, basically exterminating these Rohingya villages close to the uh, Bangladesh border in Rakhine State. It wasn't necessarily safe to say things about it, but they were speaking out uh, 
talking about how it, just just basically saying you know publicly how it's not right. This should not be happening. We should not be discriminating against these people. They're stateless. They're victims. So that was a big thing to see, uh, to see people speaking out publicly, even though they don't know what that's going to mean mm. for them or for their families. They don't know who's going to knock on the door the next day of some, you know, if the military is going to come and say, you got to come with us down for some questioning or something like that. But no, I was not personally uh, witness to that, just to the subcultures that were, that were speaking out on it. Okay. For the people who get into the, the bare-knuckle fighting there, is, is there an end game with that? Like, do they hope to transition into, like, like into the MMA world, or is it a financial incentive? It's, well, most of the fighters, uh, local fighters, they are from the countryside. They mostly come from small villages. They're, you know, the sons of, of farmers, mostly. Uh, sons of impoverished families. And fighting is a way out of poverty. Mm. That being said, I mean, they're not paid a huge amount of money for what they do and for the amount of punishment that they put their bodies through. Right. However, they can earn more than they would as a farmer, which, you know, is basically... They're coming from subsistence-level existences. And fighting is a way out. So they start at a very young age. Uh, all the fighters that I talked to starting at eight, nine years old was not uncommon. By the oh. time they're 20, 200, 300 fights, not uncommon. A lot of them, I'm assuming, like unsanctioned. They're sanctioned, I guess. Um, I mean, with that kind of sport, sanctioning is kind of moot anyway because mm-hmm. it's, it's bare-knuckle fighting. It's just the way it is. And headbutting is allowed. Ah. It's, it's stand-up fighting. It's like Muay Thai with headbutts, basically, okay. if people are familiar with that. So you can use elbows, you can use knees, you can use fists, uh, but you can also crank somebody in the nose with your skull. So it's hugely dangerous. You, take a ton, you can take a ton of punishment doing it. And most guys are done by the time they're 25. And at that point, uh, dealing with all kinds of injuries, they don't really seem to know about head injuries so much, I mean, like not the long-term consequences. I, I talked to them about that. I said, do you worry about the future? Like your, your head, your, your mind, losing your mind? And they just said, no. Like, I, what? what does that mean? Like, I'm... I don't understand. They didn't really seem to understand Mm. that. And even at the like championship fight that I went to, and this is at the highest level of Lethwe in the sport, in the country of Myanmar, no medical personnel. Really? At the fight. No ambulance, no paramedics. Uh, I don't even think there was a ringside doctor. There was somebody there who would uh, say if the fight was stopped due to a cut to examine the cut. He would do that, but I don't think he was a doctor. I think he was just a fight official. Holy just shit. saying, no, that's not a bad cut. Like, yeah, he's fine. He's, you know, it's not bleeding into his eye. He's still able to stand up. It's a brutal sport. Yeah. It's a hugely brutal sport. Uh, it's the only s- combat sport in the world uh, that is legal that I know of where, like, if you get knocked out, you're not necessarily done. Like, they take you back to the corner. They slap you in, upside the head, and they try and revive you. They splash some water on you, and they send you back oh. out. They can send you back out again after you've already been knocked out once. And the only way to win is by knockout. I mean, there's no judges. There's no decision. If you don't knock the other person out at the end of the five rounds, it's a tie. Wow. So you either tie or you, or you win or you lose. By no- and the only way you win or you lose is by knockout. So guys are going in there to take each other's heads off. It's, and I, I find that 
alluring as well, mm. you know, from, from the dark side of me because people go into this willingly, even though, you know, they're coming from positions of poverty. Um, but they seem to love it. They, they, they love getting in there and just seeing who's the better man. Who, like, either I go in there and I knock your head off or you knock my head off. We shake hands at the end of it. Because uh, I, I couldn't do it. Like, I used to box a little bit, but I'm not a fighter. Mm-hmm. Because I would go in there and think, man, I could get hurt. These guys, they don't think about that. They don't think about 20 years down the road and what if I have CTE. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you don't really see another alternative... Yeah, it's lack of, I mean, you know, and the greatest fighters, they always come out of poverty, whether it's in the U.S. or whether it's in Myanmar, yeah. anywhere. The favelas of Brazil. <laughs> they, come out of, yeah. they come out of the worst circumstances because they have to fight to survive. But then, of course, you have the current champion that I was covering, who, uh, Dave LeDuc from Quebec in Canada. I mean, he, he comes from a normal family background. And he's an amazing fighter. I mean, like, he's the champ. Did he win when you went? Yeah, he won. And he's, wow. uh, he's f- defending the championship again on December 16th coming up in Yangon against a Burmese guy that he's fought twice before. There's no um, sort of goal to transition to try to get into like one out, like one FC out here? Or? Um, there is. I mean, there there's one uh, Burmese-American guy. I forget his name. His nickname is The Python. Uh, he ha- he's in one and he's a champion. Um, so he's managed to do it. I think some of the younger fighters coming up now, uh, they might have that those aspirations. But most of them, no. They're just going to fight Lethway. The, the ones I talked to, I said, what's your plan after this? They just want to go open up their own farm. Mm. Like when they're in their mid-20s and maybe done and retire, they want to go open up their own like rice farm, fish farm, something like that. They just want to go back and live their lives in peace. They just want to hope to bank up enough cash from fighting to to bankroll whatever they're going to do next but it's not like okay i'm going to use this as a platform to try and get into the ufc or one or bellator or some regional promotion out here you know there's a lot of promotions in china or something like that most of them they're just like no i'm going to fight here in myanmar maybe in thailand a little bit or some of them go overseas to when lethway is put on in the few countries that do but most of them, no, I'm just going to fight at home, try and save up as much as I can, and then go back to live a quiet life in the countryside. I've, uh, this is fascinating to me. Um, I have so many questions. If at any point we need to stop at some point, just let me know. No, no, because go for I'll, All right. I got nothing but time. All right, that's, that's awesome. Um, you briefly mentioned sort of like the, the free speech kind of idea, yeah. right? If you look at Cambodia right now, the sort of like liberal-leaning newspaper was shut down, and I believe they had some foreign writers who were like now not allowed to leave the country. I think just yesterday I saw that there's a Chinese photographer or writer who disappeared. Yeah, in uh, in Xinjiang, in East Turkestan. Uh, yeah, he's he's disappeared. So things are getting pretty weird. Um, even though you're not, you know. Uh, a national in some of the places that you're going, you are covering things, again, like uh, drug trade in the Philippines is a tricky topic. Do you ever get worried for yourself, or do you, or have you ever been in any sort of, like, dicey situations? I've been in dicey situations. I mean, like, you know, covering the drug war in, uh, in Manila, I mean, we were only there for... I was only there for maybe about 10 days. But, you know, every night you're going to murder scenes or to 
watch police operations in which people are being killed. And there's bullets and there's gangsters and there's drug dealers, there's people fighting for their lives. Uh, I mean, so that's dicey. I mean, you never know which way the bullets are going to fly or if one's meant for you or not. Uh, I've never really thought about it, honestly. Um, I guess I'm not a fighter in the physical sense, but I guess I might be in the writing sense because I don't think about the danger so much. Um, maybe that's just stupidity or arrogance because, I mean, nobody ever thinks it's... You never think it's going to be you, right? Mm -hmm. it, with anything. But it might be at some point. I don't know, but... Would that stop me from going to cover a story? I don't, I don't think so. Um, just because I think the purpose in writing it or in telling the story, it's, it has higher value <laughs> than um, necessarily my own safety. Now that may change as I grow older, uh, I'm not sure. But yeah, I've been in some, some dicey situations where definitely safety is a concern. I mean, we were in, I was in China earlier this year and we were in the Tibetan regions. Oh, wow. And there's, there are people following you around. Really? Yeah, you notice, you notice them. Um, you don't just happen to run into the same people in vastly different places. <laughs> right. A few days Oh, in there a row. you are again. Yeah. And, you know, it's... <laughs> It's kind of stereotypical, but yeah, there's the guy sitting in the corner pretending he's reading a newspaper. Wow. And then you go to a different part of the city or even a different part of the province the next day, there's the same guy. And you know, you're not on a tour package there. He's not just happened. He doesn't just happen to be there. But you know, that's, that's part of uh, reporting in China or reporting in regions where freedom of speech is suppressed. Freedom of information is definitely repressed. But you just kind of try and roll with it the the best you can. And I'm, I don't want to play this up like I'm in those situations every day. This right. is, you know, that's a part-time thing for me. So, I mean, there's journalists out there here operating in Asia that do this every day. But, you know, it's uh, it's definitely part of life and something you have to, to consider. But if you think about it too much, you might just quit, I guess, because nobody wants to go to prison anywhere or to wind up disappeared. I'm curious about the Philippines. That's where I started this journey um, on July 1st. In, in the States, and, and, and Canada is a great reference, you know, Canada just legalized marijuana. There's states in the United States that have legalized it. There's now medical trials that are showing really positive effects of like psilocybin, of even like MDMA, uh, like ketamine treatments. It's a, it's a strange thing to me then to be in a place like the Philippines where people are literally being gunned down in the streets. Like, yeah, I don't think people should be pushing heroin on, on corners. Of course. But from, from the work that you've done, like, what is sort of fueling this? Is it insanity? Is it like a weird way of like twisted like, Christian values almost because it's a pretty Christian nation? Like, why is this happening? It's just... Oh, kind of, well, to me, it's a warped sense of morality. And, you know, perhaps, you know, quote unquote, Christian Catholic values play into it because the country is vastly majority Catholic and drugs are a sin. And, you know, if you're hardcore Christian Catholic, uh, what have you, you know, sin ultimately is punishable by the ultimate judgment. So if you're somebody who is pushing uh, shabu, uh, the cheap methamphetamine, yeah. on the streets. 
a lot of people there are of the opinion that you deserve death. You deserve to die. And although I don't agree with shoot first, ask questions later, or having, you know, police be judge, jury, and executioner on the streets, having seen firsthand the impact of drugs in the country, I do somewhat understand where the people are coming from because that drug destroys lives, destroys families. I mean, I met people. I met, I met parents on the day that their uh, son had been murdered. Murdered in the streets. And he was just a user, apparently. That's what they said. He was not a dealer, but he was using. But his death was a relief to his parents because he had become unrecognizable. He was stealing from them constantly. He was uh, abusing the mother physically. He was uncontrollable. And so when the police gunned him down, they were sad. Of course, they had lost their son. They were grieving. But they said, in a way, it's a blessing because he, he's free now. He's free from the pain that he was in. Because nobody who is in a good place turns to drugs. I mean, rarely. I mean, unless you're some, you know, rich kid who decides, hey, let's try heroin one day mm. and gets into it by accident. I mean, drugs, drug use is fueled by misery. It's fueled by poverty. And that's what it is in the Philippines. I mean, it's a war on yeah. poverty. No middle-class drug users are getting arrested. No middle-class mm. drug users are upper-class. Like, not really. A few. No, you're right. Like, I, like, it's funny because, like, I was around people smoking weed when I was in Cebu and when I was in Manila. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, like, they're not going after tourists. Yeah. They're going, after, they're going to the slums. They're going to the worst parts of Manila where people, in some cases, live on literal mounds of garbage and gunning people down. And so I think that fuels it too, because, you know, if you're a middle-class Filipino, upper-class, you don't see mm. what's going on. You see the pictures in the paper, you see the reports on TV, but it's just numbers. And, you know, we're all, we all have great ability to be detached from the things we're not directly affected by. You might, you read of a tragedy somewhere in another part of the world and you think, oh man, that's terrible. Um, you feel bad for a minute or two and then you flip the page or you scroll down to the next story. And, you know, if I was a middle-class person in the Philippines, maybe that would be me. Mm. But if I was living in the slum and my neighbors were the ones getting killed, or if the next day, the next day or the next night, you don't know if they're going to bash down your door and put one in your head, then it becomes a lot more real, you know? But, you know, I understand where people are coming from saying, yeah, we're, we love Duterte. We're so happy that he's cleaning up the streets. Mm. But... You know, it's it's a campaign of eradication. It's, it's thousands of people getting murdered with no trial. And so there's obviously not all of them uh, are guilty of anything. Right. Besides poverty. <laughs> guilty besides of being, being poor. Yeah. Guilty of being poor. Yeah. I mean, if you're poor, if you have no job, if you have no prospects... Are you just going to be this happy-go-lucky person? Or, or if somebody offers you something to smoke, that's going to take the pain away. You know, I talked I talk to kids there. They weren't into Shabu, like, but little kids, seven years old, some of them, five, six, seven. And they're starving. They're homeless. They got no, and their parents might be addicts too. But they, uh, they would sniff uh, rugby, which is shoe polish. Holy to shit. To get high. And I said, well, why do you do that? They said, this is the only thing that makes us forget we're hungry. 
That is intense. So I mean, it's, it's a so I mean, it's a, it's a survival mechanism. That's that's all it is. You, you're you're living in te- terrible circumstances. You're hungry all the time. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. You've got no prospects for the future because nobody's going to employ you. You've got no education. The best you can hope is you can uh, salvage scraps, basically. You can salvage cardboard. You can salvage metal off the streets. You can pick the garbage out of the uh, esteros running through the city. And you can sell that for a few pesos a day, and you can maybe get some food. That's probably the best you can hope for. So, I mean, if that's me, and I've got some kind of escape from that, from the daily shit that I'm living in, I'm not going to lie. I'm probably going to take it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's... Uh, that's and I'm an, I'm an outsider. I mean, I can go in, I can observe, I write my little report, and I leave. That's easy for me. But if you're living in that daily, there's got to be a better way to deal with that than shooting people, you know, and killing people and just, you know, using fear. Fe- fear, intimidation, violence is a very temporary and very bad solution to a, f- a more, far more wide, uh, broad problem in that country. And, you know, it starts with poverty, corruption, what have you. So, I mean, they gotta, if they don't solve any of that, this is not going to change anything. You brought up something that I've been thinking about a lot. So I I went to Brunei and, um, I met some like really amazing people who it's funny because there's this perception, I think, that's pushed by certain media sources in the West that like, oh, like uh, countries that are mostly, mostly Islamic are unsafe. Yeah. And those have been the places where people have been the friendliest to me. Um, and so I met some amazing people who like took care of me, made sure I had rides there because there's not like a whole lot of public transportation. Uh, but I also was told a lot of stuff about like what's happening in government, the royal family, all this corrupt stuff. And I've just been sort of sitting on putting an episode out about it because I'm like, I don't know if this is my place. It, it, it's a tricky thing because it's like, I want to talk about the truth. I don't want the, the people I met in Brunei to think I'm like shitting on Brunei. Is it even my place as like, again, like a pretty privileged white middle-class guy to talk about like sort of like the underbelly of Brunei? Like, do you ever have to, I guess this is more for me. Like, do you ever have to like reconcile with that and think like, should I be reporting this in a way yes i mean it's tough because when you're reporting on things like this i mean you are going to a place and you know i've gone to the philippines a few times now and all i'm doing is collecting the worst of that country and you know putting that out to the world basically i'm saying like all this terrible all these terrible things are happening in the philippines however i mean the Philippines has a ton of good stuff going on. I mean, one of the warmest, friendliest, most welcoming, most giving cultures you will ever meet anywhere. Anthony Bourdain said the same thing when he went there. He said there's no place more giving than the Philippines. The people that have the least will give you the most. They'll share their last scrap of food with you just to make you feel welcome. But I'm not telling that story when I come back. I might tell it to my friends. I might say it on this podcast, but it's not anywhere in my reports, really. So, yeah, it is something you have to think about. And there is that thing of, you know, we're just, you know, white Western journalists parachuting in, collecting all this shit, (laughs) and then just taking off. 
and we're making money off it. So in a way, we're literally profiting off other people's misery. Or, you know, like the Dead Kennedy song, taking a vacation and uh, uh, taking a holiday in other people's misery. So, yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason why I don't and probably couldn't do this full time. I think it would, uh, and this happens to a lot of journalists. I mean, you know, they become alcoholics. They, you know, become kind of wretches, basically, because it's, after a while, after you see too much, after you know too much, and after you become, you realize that I make my living uh, talking about the worst of humanity or like going to these places and basically writing or broadcasting how bad they are. That I think that can take a toll. I mean, uh, I remember back to journalism school, we met, uh, there was a foreign correspondent that came in and did a little presentation talking about his life and all the things that he had seen. And he was talking about how now it's mandatory for their foreign correspondents who live in these, like, uh, who go to cover things like war zones or, uh, you know, coup d'etats or things like that. When they come back, therapy is mandatory uh, at the company that he was working for. Wow. Because, you know, he had gone to, most recently he had gone to Haiti. This was back in the 2000, early 2000s. Around the earthquake, maybe? Yeah. And I mean, he had seen, like, he, you know, he was driving down the street with his, you know, his fixer and his security. And he was, you know, he was safe. But they're driving past an alley. And he sees, you know, a girl who is in the process of getting raped. Oh, my God. At gunpoint. So, you know, he can't do any, And he can't do anything. No matter what he wants to do, if he gets out of the car, he's dead. So he, they, they have to keep going. He saw somebody who was tied up to a stop sign, a, a body, tied up to a stop sign, legs chopped off, on fire. Oh, my God. These are the things he's seeing on a daily basis. Can't do anything about it. And, you know, for me, in my limited experience, like going to these places, I mean, you go there and your heart breaks on an hourly basis, not even a daily basis. You're, you're seeing heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. Like going to the, covering the drug war for me was going to funerals, going to scenes where people were getting shot, going to scenes where people had been shot, talking to families who had just lost loved ones, and you, you can become somewhat detached. Like the first one, I was shocked, probably white as a ghost. Uh, couldn't believe it. But then after that, it was just like, okay, it's another body. And that's just after one. Mm. Uh, the thing that really brought it home was when I saw a kid get killed, a little girl. Uh, and, and she had... And this was one of the things that made me understand where people are coming from in terms of drug dealers, pushers, users, uh, deserve whatever they get. Because this little girl, she was seven, and she had been uh, raped and killed by a meth head. Jesus, man. In a cemetery. And, and we, were, we, we went there, and we, we, we saw her, uh, and she had her you know, underwear stuffed into her mouth. This is a little kid. And man, like, and, and these people are living in it every day. This is, this is reality for them. This was, a, this was one day in my life. That's it. And you know, I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. Like that, will, that image of that little girl will be in my head 
for the rest of my life. But you know, I'm, I'm free here, I'm safe. I'm, I'm removed from that. I'm not even in the same country. I'm not in the same city anymore. Her parents, I mean, that's a, li- that's a lifelong devastation. Mm. You don't get over that. Anybody who's any, anywhere remotely close to her, to her family, they're never getting over that. No matter how much therapy, how much time is between them and that tragedy, it's gonna live in them forever. So, yeah, I mean, and we struggled too. Like, do we report that? Do we report that this little girl got killed? Because it means publishing an image of the family. It means telling the, the horrible, grisly details of her death and putting them out there for the entire world or at least some portion of it to see. Now, in the end, um, we did not publish the pictures. Um, just, you know, out of common decency, I believe. We did publish the story of the death. And the reason is because you hope that by having this information out there, by having the story published, it lets people see the reality. It lets people see what's actually going on. And in a way to hide it would be doing a disservice, I think because it's not telling the whole truth. It's not saying exactly what's going on. It's not saying how bad it's getting. And in this case, it wasn't showing, this would mean not showing the other side of it. When people say, we support Duterte, we want the drug dealers dead. This was a way to say, this is where they're coming from. Maybe we don't agree with it, Yeah. which I still don't, in spite of that awfulness. I still don't, but this is where they're coming from when they say that. It's interesting because I think, you know, I, I've, I've never experienced anything like that. But I think something that, you know, doing these episodes and traveling a lot has shown me is that there's a lot of gray area in... Well, the world is made up of shades of gray, man. That's, yeah. that's where everybody lives. When I was quite young, um, it was like the world to me was black and white. It was... Uh, and we'll, we'll start to get into music and stuff like that. But to me, it was like uh, mid to late teens, just like any form of authority for me was a massive problem and I couldn't like I just could not gel with it and so yep. I was like off the charts like yeah I'm gonna go live in a commune like fuck society all that kind of stuff um, and things just don't neatly fit into like a black or white left or right box uh, so yeah that's fascinating to me like I wonder how you, like you, you talked about the family not bouncing back from that like how do you how do you bounce back from seeing something like that I don't know man like I'm I, I think about that a lot. And again, like I don't, this is not my daily life. Like that was, I went there for, you know, 10 days or whatever. And I went back a few months later for another couple of weeks. But then I can go and I can come back to my comfortable life, my comfortable house, you know, my other daily work that has nothing to do with any form of tragedy or anything like that. And I can decompress. I've got time. I've got space. I've got resources at hand uh, where I can, you know, basically recover, which they don't have. So, I mean, I'm very lucky in that sense where I can, I can delve into whatever topic that I want. And if something does have a negative effect on my psyche or, you know, my mental well-being, I can go do something else. Mm. Like I have that ultimate freedom, which to me is, you know, the, that's the only way to live. That's the only way I want to live because I'm a lot like you just described. I have a big problem <laughs> I still have a big problem with authority, man. I'm 36 now. 
so I'm not like young, I guess anymore, but, uh, I find myself not mellowing with age. I, I, I kind of get more angry, more pissed off at the way things are. And I'm not going to go live in a commune just because I don't think I could handle doing drum circles and, you know, yeah. <laughs> massage lines and things like that. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, I sit in my apartment most days and I can write there and I can be by myself. I can be with my wife and my cats. I don't have to deal with other people's bullshit, which is a big thing for me. A big plus. So, yeah, I mean, I've got time, I've got distance, I've got space from these things. So I, recovery is not an issue for me. And I'm, for some reason, I don't know what kind of mental defect I have, but I, I detach from those sorts of things somehow. I'm not sure if I'm just blocking it out or the effects of it or if it comes up later. Uh, if it's going to bubble up at some point and I'm going to explode, I don't know. I don't think so. I'm usually pretty pretty calm but you know I did spend a few months in therapy this year um, dealing with various things and maybe that was a part of it maybe seeing things like that uh, contributed to it I'm not sure it's weird because sometimes I'll talk to, uh, I'll, I'll describe it as like an it um, I think there's sort of a and I'll use this to segue into music but I think there's sort of a, like a global kinship uh, with people who are into a certain type of art and music. And maybe it sounds snobby to say that. I don't really care. But like yeah. you mentioned Bourdain, um, the final episode that they just put out was the Lower East Side. Yeah. And it showed like uh, the old New York, the, the 1970s New York. You know, uh, I, I wish he had Patti Smith on there because I think she would have fit in nicely with that. But, uh, you know, a really like sort of... Um, punk ethic. And I think that he, he's sort of a guy, you know, like a true believer. Like he, he, he had that sort of it. And I think you kind of, you know, it's our literary heroes or, or, or people who created the types of movies that we like, the music that we like, um, that we identify with. And yeah, maybe it is like a certain level of dysfunction, but I think you sort of, you sort of know the it when you see it. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering for you, like when you first started identifying with like, uh, it, whether it's like a heavy music community or an alternative or punk community, at what, at what stage in your life was that? I was uh, maybe about 11 or 12 when I first got introduced to punk music through a neighbor. I had a neighbor, his name was Ian Sargent and he was a skater kid. And he later went on to become like a sponsored, you know, kind of pro oh, or wow. semi-pro skateboarder for a while. I think he runs a skate shop now, or at least he was back home. I kind of lost track of him. But anyway, he was a neighbor. He was actually a year younger than me, but he had way cooler, way better taste in music. And he gave me like a tape, I think, or he, or he had one of the early uh, Punkarama yeah, compilations yeah, yeah, from yeah. back in the day. And he gave me that. You know, it had no effects. It had Bad Religion, Pennywise, bands like that. And I heard that for the first time and I was like, whoa, like it just, you know, opens up this whole other world because I was a very confused in basically every way, kid, which most kids are, but, you know, I just always felt like I didn't fit in and I kind of felt like I didn't necessarily, like, although I, everybody has that longing to be, you know, a part of something, that something that I saw around me, um, wasn't it. And I didn't know what it was, but when I heard that music, like from basically from the first chord, I mean, the opening track was a NoFX track. And from the opening bass line of it, I was just like, whoa, okay, what's this? And then the, you just ripped into the, to the first verse. And I'm like, okay, this is it. 
this is, I don't know what this is either yet, and I'm kind of scared, but I think this is what I'm looking for, because this is fast, it's pissed off, I feel like thrashing my room right now, and I don't know why, because I'm a big mess of hormones and confusion, but this could be it, this could be my outlet. So I was about 11 or 12, but I was not, I didn't identify with any like community, because I was also scared that if I tried to join that community, which I didn't even know where it was or who it was or if they existed at all in my hometown. I thought they would make fun of me too. Mm. Like, oh, look at this dork coming to try and be, you know, punk or metal. So I just basically for years, I just listened to it at home, like in my room. And like, I would go to school, I'd dress normal, I'd dress like a preppy kid. And then I'd go home and listen to this fucked up music. I got like from punk, I segued into metal and death metal and like started looking for more and more extreme stuff so I didn't actually feel free to try and join a community basically until I came out here to Taiwan because out here nobody knew who I was nobody knew what I was supposed to be you know what I mean like the, the context of all the people I knew all the people that ever knew me and all their uh notions about what I'm supposed to be they don't exist anymore so now I can be that guy that I wanted to be probably when I was 12. And now I'm, you know, 22 years old yeah. trying to figure out who I am for the first time. I, I'm a late bloomer in that, in that sense. That's funny, man. Like my entry was the exact same. Like I remember the Punkarama, the cover was like, it was like a kid with like a black eye. And yeah, I think yeah. like no effects, like linoleum was on that. Yep. To me, like those like mailing comps were the best because like a kid with like, you know, uh, at like 13 years old, you don't have a job, you don't have money, but you could get like 20 different bands. They're like five bucks. Right, exactly. You could could send $5 literally cash in an envelope to the record label and like get it mailed back to you. It was a different age. Yeah, yeah. Um, But you write a lot about music. You write a lot about music in Taiwan. That's where like, I, I've seen a lot of like your sort of media appearance appearances. Like people are asking you about that stuff. Um, you touched on like one experience of like entry into that sort of world, which is quite similar to mine, a little bit, maybe more suburban, like skateboarding was the connection. There's also sort of like, we mentioned the like 1970s Bourdain, the sort of like urban decay, you know, broken family, maybe like uh, parental drug use sort of thing, like this disillusionment with family and society and cops and all this stemming from sort of like a societal or urban sickness. Uh, does that exist here in Taipei or in Taiwan? Like, like how, how do you think kids are getting an entry into like metal, hardcore, like punk music? Well, the thing is here, like it's the punk metal scene. It's a lot younger than it is. So like, than it is, say, back in New York where, like, it originated. Um, it's probably at least 20 years mm. behind. Uh, and that's just because in the years, in the formative years of punk and metal in the West, Taiwan was a lot more closed off. Uh, it was under martial law until 1987. Yeah. The first democratic elections weren't until the early 90s. That sort of thing. So, you know, Western music that was uh, subversive, like punk and metal didn't really start to infiltrate the culture in a broader sense until the late 90s. And so it started coming in and then, you know, bands here, younger guys and girls started getting into it and they obviously have their own sources of frustration and rage here and it's mostly 
uh, political, uh, deal, whether it's domestic politics, um, you know, the back and forth here between the KMT and the, the DPP, the pro-China uh, unification side and the pro-independent side. Uh, it's, you know, anger at, you know, China's thumb constantly pressing down on a nation that is not recognized by the majority of the world as a nation that has to go by a different name than the majority of people here want, that it goes by Chinese Taipei in international competitions or in uh, any sort of... Uh, any sort of context where we're talking politics, it's Chinese Taipei and not Taiwan. So, I mean, imagine if, you know, me being from Canada, if somebody said, no, right. you're not Canada, you're British Ottawa. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I saw that in the ASEAN Games when I was in Indonesia, Chinese Taipei. Well, I used to be confused because, like, I knew Chinese Taipei because, uh, you know, back in the day when I was a little kid, the Chinese Taipei softball team came to Saskatoon for a game for some reason. I was like, what's Chinese Taipei? And then somebody said, oh, that's Taiwan. And I knew Taiwan because it was on the bottom of all my toys made in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, I mean, imagine how pissed off you'd be if nobody knows who you are. Can we, so tomorrow, actually, I'm going to be recording with somebody. Uh, you might even know. You've written for Taipei Times. Yep. His name is, ugh, pronunciation, I'm not good with. His name is like Brian Heo. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Bloom Media, right? Yes, yes. exactly. Uh, so we're going to talk about the elections and things like that. Uh, but for people who are hearing this first, like, and maybe even for my own understanding, what exactly is the, like, sovereignty situation? Like, Taipei is its own country, but China still lays claim to it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really complicated, and Brian will be a much better source for breaking this down. Okay. On, uh, like, he'll have all the details for you, trust me. So you guys should, uh, if you're curious about this, listen to that show. But yeah, I mean, like, uh, Taiwan is de facto independent. I mean, it mm -hmm. has its own government. It has its own currency. It's, it's been that way for, for decades. Uh, China regards Taiwan as a breakaway province. Um, and it, it, yeah, it gets really complicated and dicey. But, you know, prior from, there was the Chinese Civil War, which ended in 1949 between the nationalists and the communists. Nationalists lost. They decamped to Taiwan. They basically escaped, you know, and the, the KMT, the army, and roughly about a million uh, civilians came across the Taiwan Strait to Taiwan, and they set up the government here uh, after, after World War II, basically. They, they set up, and this, that was the... ROC, Republic of China, mm. government, which the United States recognized up, up until uh, the Nixon days. So they used to recognize Taipei as the seat of the government of China. That changed with Nixon. He switched allegiances to the People's Republic of China, so Beijing. And then after that, the allies that uh, Taiwan had, they just started falling like dominoes, you know, for economic and political reasons because the economy of China started to gradually pick up and there's money to be made as it's slowly starting to open up. Taiwan is small, nation of roughly 23 million people. China has 1.4 billion, mm -hmm. something like that. And, you know, especially in the past 15, 20 years, they now have a middle class. They have a huge upper class. They have a lot, of, I mean, the majority of the country still lives in poverty, 
But if you've got 1.4 billion people, you've still got hundreds of millions of middle-class people who can now buy products from American companies, Canadian companies, European companies, and companies from any other part of the world. So allegiances shifted. Taiwan now has, I believe, fewer than 20 official diplomatic allies. So it is independent. It's just that the majority of the world's countries do not recognize it as such. And any efforts to declare itself as such will be met by anything up to and including uh, military invasion from China. So they, they can't say it. They can't yeah. declare it formally without risking war. So that's the situation that we're in. They call it the status quo. And people say, well, we'll just maintain the status quo and we will just go on being democratic and being de facto independent without actually saying the words. So then essentially, like for the sake of our story here, you have, you know, the traditional entries into the, like uh, sort of a subculture, uh, trying to find your identity, finding a group that you identify with and belong to. And then on top of that, there's this sort of like, almost like national, like ennui, like this sort of like, uneasy feeling, I guess, then, because of the political situation of, with China? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you never, you're never exactly sure what, which way the winds are going to blow. Mm. I mean, uh, we just had the elections here a couple yeah. of days ago, which nobody saw that coming. I mean, nobody saw the KMT basically retaking power in the majority of the island. Because this is a party that ruled over the country with an iron fist for decades. The whole white terror period, which in up to around 200,000 Taiwanese were killed mm -hmm. by the government. Killed, disappeared, murdered. That, and that party still exists and then sweeps to power again. So, I mean, it's, it's not on par with like some party like the Nazis or something still existing and still somehow having power in Germany. But it's still a political party that murdered tens of thousands of people and people still vote for them, you know. It, there's a weird swing, man. Like, since I've been traveling, um, you know, obviously we had Trump. Um, that was yeah. prior to traveling. But, like, since I've been traveling, uh, Brazil elected a far-right right president. There's a weird situation in Sri Lanka, like, right after I left, where they elected a president who people were at least alleging that was, like, a former war criminal. This is very unpopular to say, but the... Um, opponent in next year's elections in Indonesia who's running against a very popular president. Joko. Yeah. The, the, his opponent was a war criminal from like the era that you're not even allowed to mention the year. Yeah. Um, Japan has Shinzo Abe. He's uh, far right. There's a very like strange global swing right now and it is really confusing because it's like, hey man, like almost like the internet was like the great equalizer in that. Like we can all be educated now. Like we can all know about history very easily. How is this sort of happening? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it has to do with the, the promulgation of, you know, f falsehoods mm -hmm. basically. I mean, the, the internet can be used as a tool of enlightenment or it can be used uh, for purposes of evil. And I mean, like you see it across even like Europe now, I mean, far yeah. right nationalist yeah. movements like Poland, 
scary shit's going down in Poland. I mean, Italy is becoming far more uh, right wing. I think even in like Greece. Holland and Sweden, like the, yeah. Yeah, I mean Holland has I forget the guy's like name. Blonde hair. Yeah. yeah, and he's a nut bar too. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, from my point of view, I mean I'm obviously left leaning in my politics. Uh, I'm not a fan of any of these people, like like Trump. I I can't stand the guy. I think he's a terrible person, let alone a terrible leader. But you know I. I was, uh, even me as a foreigner living here, I mean, like, I, I've been here for a number of years, but, you know, I'm not Taiwanese. Mm. I will never be Taiwanese. I, I'm just a, I'm a foreigner living here, but what happened in the elections here, they broke my heart. I mean, like, especially with the potential legalization of, uh, of uh, with the potential, we have potential for marriage equality here for people who are not aware. Could have been the first country in Asia to... Uh, equalize the laws uh, for same-sex marriage, uh, have similar uh, equal benefits uh, for homosexual couples, and that didn't pass because of the efforts of a lot of uh, far-right Christian groups, unfortunately, and that that broke my heart too. So imagine if you're a local here. I mean, like, this this is your country, and the world won't let you actually be a country, and even within your country there is all this unrest and there's this left right divide that has now emerged that people didn't really seem to see before and this election really seems has woken us all up to it like whoa maybe this place is not as progressive as we thought it was mm. i do believe the younger generations are but you know the vote swung the way it did and it's it's uh d- deeply disappointing to me just as even as an outside observer but you know that's what contributes to the, to the subcultures here as well. That's why you have the punks speaking up against it, against uh, speaking up in favor, I should say, of things like marriage equality, speaking up in favor of Taiwanese independence and things of, of that nature. That's why you have bands like Thonic or bands like, uh, you know, Roadside Inn that are actively campaigning for equal mm. rights, actively promoting Taiwan as a country. So... It's good for the subcultures, I guess. Last night I went to Revolver, which I guess essentially like nightly has, uh, you know, bands playing in the upstairs venue portion. Yeah, of, like five nights a week, yeah. That's freaking awesome. Um, it, are there other outlets for people then who are looking to see bands, for bands to play? Revolver is the spot now. Uh, back up up until two thir- t- 2013, we had Underworld, which was basically like Taiwan's CBGBs. Wow. Underground, just like totally dirty, dank, awesome place. And it's where all the punk and metal bands, like it's where all kinds of bands play. There's, there's people that are pop stars now that started off there. And it was great. But uh, it got caught up in the uh, gentrification of the uh, Shida neighborhood. And now it's a gift shop or something. It's or it's <laughs> empty. I'm not sure. I, I go by there once in a while and I look and it's depressing every time. We had that. That's gone. Uh, but now it's revolver. I mean, if you're in town, you want to go see bands. If it's any night, basically Wednesday through Sunday, there's going to be bands on. There's a pipe down by uh, down by the river. It's it's a great venue because there's no neighbors and uh, you can go as late as you want. You can be as loud as you want. You can be as stupid as you want. And nobody's going to complain because you know it's in a park by the river. There's the wall now as well, uh, to a lesser extent. So, you know, some like you know bigger, more mainstream bands play there, but also underground metal, some punk. 
And it's under new management now uh, that's going to be, I think, more friendly to that. Again, the last, uh, the last owner was not so much into that, uh, but he's gone now. Got uh, people in that are going to be more, more, uh, more into that, I hope. So there's a few places, not a lot for a city of this size. Yeah, it's interesting to me. In places like Manila, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, even like, uh, like Tokyo, there's a much more visible subculture in where you'll be walking down the street. You'll see, you know, you'll see kids with tattoos, with metal shirts. Uh, you mentioned yourself, you know, you've got a sleeve, you're yeah. covered in tattoos. I don't, at least, you know, I've been here a week or so. I haven't really seen that too much. I, I read in your article for Noisy, um, who are, you know, I guess like a subsidiary of, of Vice, the music sort of channel, that, you know, image and public persona is really important here. Like, it, is the image supposed to be kind of squeaky clean? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, the old saying here is that your, your hair and your skin belong to your parents. They don't belong to you. You know what I mean? So you're not supposed to get tattoos. You're not supposed to grow your hair long. You're not supposed to have your hair too short either. Like, uh, if you've got a shaved head, you're a gangster. If really? your hair is long, you're a gangster. If you got tattoos, you're a gangster. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, yeah, you're, you're supposed to keep it pretty squeaky clean, you know, to honor your parents because, you know, filial piety is a big thing here. Yeah. Now, of course, as times change, you know, tattoos are becoming maybe less of a big deal. But still, like my wife has tattoos. She'll get into a taxi and the taxi driver will look at her. And, you know, without being asked for his opinion, he'll kind of cluck his tongue and be like, never going to get a husband that way, you know, looking wow. like you do. She'll be like, yeah, well, actually, you know, I got one. And by the way, I didn't ask you for your opinion, buddy. But, you know, those attitudes still persist. And even, you know, playing music, um, it's seen mostly as a pursuit of childhood. You know, you can do it up through school, high school, maybe even to university. But once that's done, once you graduate, time to go to work. Mm. And, you know, you can keep it as a hobby. Keep your music as a part-time hobby. Play a little guitar on the weekends, whatever. But don't pursue it as a life. Don't be serious about it. Your purpose now is to make money because you need to take care of your parents when they're old, in their old age, because there are pensions here, but they're not that great. Uh, and for some people, there is no pension at all. So your pension is your kids. Mm. So if your kid is going to be some, you know, starving artist, that's basically saying, well, when I'm old, I'm screwed. I'm going to have no money. <laughs> like, yeah. And the kid is saying, well, yeah, yeah, you're screwed. I'm not going to be able to take care of you because I'm pursuing this artist's life. So anything with like art, music, anything creative, not really encouraged in the majority of families. So when you say that you haven't seen it when you walk through the streets, yeah, you're, you're not really going to see it. Punk scene is small. Metal scene is small. You're going to see it when you go out to a show. But if you are walking down the street and you see a kid wearing a punk shirt or a heavy metal shirt... It's like uh, it's like seeing a unicorn. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, or a little something. Bit. Maybe even a little bit rare, but it exists. It's uh, a lot of those people though. They're just during the day. They're probably in an office somewhere. You know, their tattoos are covered up. Their hair's tied back. They're living the straight life. And on the weekend, they're raging in some underground club. You know, getting it all out of their system. Your wife is Taiwanese. Yes, she is. There's something that like. So I've, I've 
I've had and have experience in um, being in relationships with people from cultures that are different from mine. It really angers me in Southeast Asia that there's a stigma against it, and it's it's usually the fault of poorly behaved white men and yes. like how prevalent that is in certain places that people will then, you know, assume a certain thing about an Asian woman who's with a white man. Yeah. Is there any sort of stigma here about that? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, here it's a little bit different because, you know, Taiwan is uh, economically strong. So, I mean, you don't really have the stereotype of the woman who is looking for a way out through a mm. foreigner. I mean, it, it I doesn't really exist here. You know, in Thailand, you have that stereotype. Yeah, sure. I and, mean, and I mean, it's not even really a stereotype. It just it yeah. just happens. I Cambodia, mean, like all, Philippines. Yeah, exactly. I mean, men basically go to these countries. There are men who basically go to these countries and for lack of a better term, they buy a wife. You know what I mean? Sometimes it actually is like a cash transaction, you know. Uh, here that doesn't really exist, but stereotypes do exist. Um, it depends on where you are. Sometimes it's actually like a positive stereotype. Like mm. my my father-in-law uh, travels a lot for business throughout the country here. And when he goes down south, they'll ask about his daughter. His, his uh, clients will ask about his daughter. And he'll say, oh, yeah, he's married to a Canadian. They're like, oh, she must be really good because she's married a foreigner. Like, yeah, yeah. Wow. Like she's, you know, it's like seen as something high class. <laughs> To them that she managed to land uh, yeah, yeah. A, to land a foreigner, that sort of thing. <laughs> so I mean, it's not like a negative stereotype, but I mean, you, you do have people that will think that perhaps she is like a, a gold digger, or uh, there is there are some people that are like, what uh, Taiwanese isn't good enough for you? Like you think mm. you're better than your country? Right. That sort of thing. It's rare. I mean. I don't think the majority of people, uh, I don't think they really care okay. that much. There might be a few guys here who are angry about it, like the they're stealing our women mentality, but like the Western foreign population here is actually really, really small. Okay. There's only yeah, about, yeah. No, about 30,000 like Western uh, people here working. I see. From the latest statistics that I've seen, so I mean, and the majority of those are in Taipei and then spread out among the other cities and towns. So I mean, it's, it's, there's not a lot of it to see or to be, to have any backlash against. I, I don't personally experience it that much. I mean, I can understand when people are talking about me and what they're saying. And if anything, they're saying something positive, but, you know, slightly insulting against my wife. Like, oh, you, you managed to land a foreigner, mm. that sort of thing. Right. Believe me, I'm the fortunate one in our, right. in our <laughs> relationship. I, I'm fortunate to land her. But it's not the same as like Thailand or the Philippines where it's like, you know, the dirty old white guy and the, you know, teenage bride who's looking for a way out. Right, exactly. Like some financial stability. I mean, she, my wife and the vast, vast uh, and I didn't mean to make it seem no, like... No, 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 yeah. no. I know, I, know, I know you're not saying that. Um, the vast majority of women here, I mean, they don't, they don't need to land a foreigner mm. to be fine. They would be fine on their own. They would be fine with the Taiwanese economically. Uh, so it doesn't have that element to it. Uh, so it, it's it's a different thing here. I'm curious about if if I'm doing something incorrect or if maybe there's something cultural. Maybe it's just language. Um, but, 
you know, I had a really successful time the last two months in the fact that like, almost like too successful in that like I'm hanging out with, you know, I'm recording with like really well-known musicians and rappers in Indonesia and like, at the very least, when people would deny me, which I'm very used to, like 99 out of 100 times I get a no, I would at least get a no. Yeah. Here, I'm having such a hard time breaking through with people to even where, like, it's, it sounds silly, but, like, on certain mediums or platforms, like, a, if I message someone th- through Facebook or Instagram, like, you can see they read it. Yes. And I'll just get no response from people. <laughs> like, Infuriating. Is that a... It, 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 I don't. Uh, maybe people just. You mean when you're messaging like ta- like locals, like Taiwanese people? Yeah, to be like, hey, you know, even like uh, musicians stuff. Like, would you want to do the podcast? Which I get it. If it's no, like I almost understand. Like, not almost. I understand that. But I'm just to engage people in even a conversation has been very difficult so far. What I would say is, um, what I would guess that that is is that people here are very, very self-conscious about making mistakes in their, in their uh, correspondence with people, like okay. or whether it's spoken or written. So they're probably not ignoring you to be like a jerk or something. They're probably just worried about communicating it in the right way and to not come off as sounding rude. Okay. There, it's, people here, like you'll, you'll meet people who speak incredibly fluent English but are terrified to speak to you because they're worried they're going to make a mistake. Perception, yeah. Okay, because, I've experienced that places. And, and that's, that comes from the uh, education culture here because here it's either right or it's wrong. There's no such thing as really getting it a little bit right, partially right. It's either right or it's not. You know, you either got 100 on the test or you're a failure, that kind of thing. And that's kind of ingrained. It's kind of beaten into people, uh, literally and figuratively. In school, mm. so when they get a message from somebody like yourself, they might want—they probably do want to either tell you yes or no, and to explain why, and to you know, at least you know, or say like, "Sorry, I can't do it." But they're worried about saying it in the right way. So when they are think that they can't, it's better for them to say nothing than to say it in the wrong way and to be to how to, to be misunderstood, basically. So I think that's maybe where you might be running into to a problem. It's, it's a language thing. Um, I'm probably a lot of them speak English very, very well, but they're just worried about making that mistake. You know what I mean? That or, makes sense. Or I, to sound foolish or even though like we're never going to judge them for it. Like you're speaking a second language. That's amazing. But their, you know? their peers will, no? No, their peers won't judge them oh, either. Okay. I don't think there. It's just it just comes from school. Uh, I, I think oh. it's just uh, it's a very harsh education system here. It's very tough. It's very dehumanizing, uh, in my wow. opinion. And that comes from like a Confucian type of a value. Confucian values are not as much of a thing here as a lot of people would like to oh. uh, to believe. They it does exist. But the school system here is geared towards writing tests. You're not learning how and why something is done. You're learning how to write the next big exam. So, for example, when you're in elementary school, you're learning how to write the entrance exam to junior high. And, like, all the junior highs are ranked. So if you do well on the junior high entrance exam, you get into the best junior high. Okay, so then you're streamlined towards perhaps getting into the best high school and then getting into, ultimately, the goal here for everyone is to get into NTU, National Taiwan University, the Harvard of Taiwan. 
you basically either went there or you went nowhere. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. I mean, there's other good schools, obviously, but that's where everybody is. That's where everybody dreams that their son or their daughter is going to go. And so the entire academic process is geared towards writing those tests that will hopefully lead to getting into NTU. So it's, uh, it's all rote, basically. You're not learning the reasons behind, uh, you know, print certain principles or theories or, or facts. You're just memorizing the facts. I see. Memorizing the answers, learning how to write the test. So when it comes to, even though they teach English from a very young age here, people will learn it for, you know, 10 years and they won't really know how to use it in a day-to-day context because all they know is that the answers are C, D, B, A, you know, in a multiple choice test. They know what a verb is. They know how to use it in a sentence. They know how to fill in the blanks on the test. But if it's going to be speaking to you and me, uh, it's a different different matter. They just don't learn the practical application. So I think the, it's just a fear, mm. a fear of making a mistake in front of a foreigner. It's going to be, you know, it's a face culture here. I mean, I'm sure you're yeah. familiar with the concept of losing face. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's the worst possible thing that could happen. And if you make a mistake, you lose face. So better just to not engage. That does make me feel a little bit better about myself. No, it's it's definitely not them saying, oh, this podcast is below me. (laughs) Who are you? That kind of thing. Okay. I'm 99.9% certain that would not be it. Cool. I do want to circle back to music because eventually when I end, I want to talk about your most recent um, novel. Okay. I'm curious about something. I had never had to really think about this before recording with musicians in Indonesia, but for better or worse, like the global language is English. Yes. To the point where like, um, again, like from Brunei to Sri Lanka to Singapore, there's American like top 40 pop music played everywhere from malls to cabs to cafes to wherever. For not even like on underground music here, but for music from Taiwan to break through on a global market, uh, does does it have to be sung in English? Not necessarily. I mean, there is one band that I work with here called Thonic. I mean, they're the biggest metal band from here. And they do publish two versions of their albums. They have done that for the past few albums, and they've brought me on to help them write the lyrics because they will publish a version in Taiwanese. Whoa, really? And then they will, for the international market, they will uh, have that same album but in English. That's wild. And so they, they bring me on to help uh, do the English versions of the songs. So I'm, I'm working with their singer, Freddie, who is also a legislator here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. Freddie Lim. Uh, we work together and we try to convey the same ideas, the same thoughts, the same emotions, and the same stories in the songs uh, in the English language. And I think that helps in a way because it's, it's never going to be exactly the same uh, because you know, you have to make it fit, you have to make it rhyme, you have to, you know, make it a usable, you have to make it a workable song. But I think that's brought them some uh, more success and exposure, Mm. having that outlet. But I mean, speaking personally, I don't think it has to be because, I mean, I listen to bands that sing in Norwegian or Swedish, Finnish, I mean, you know, like, because there's a lot of metal bands from those countries. Yeah, sure. I don't really have any idea what they're saying, but I can still, in a way, relate to the music just the way it makes me feel, mm-hmm. just the sound of it. I mean, I can relate to it on a emotion, purely emotional level. And I can still look up 
later what the songs are about. I mean, they'll have interviews talking about it. I can do it that way. And I think Taiwanese bands can do the same because, I mean, if you want to express yourself in your own language, I think you should do that. And I think ultimately the songs have more meaning to you if it's written in your own language. Like I know for, for Thonic, I mean, it's when they perform the songs in Taiwanese, that's when it has the most impact for them because that's their mother tongue. They do it in English like as a means to an end so they can relate to the foreign audience. So when they're performing overseas, they will be able to sing along and they'll be able to have a more communal experience. So I think, I think that if it's possible for bands, I mean, that would be one way to do it was you have two versions of the songs. But that's obviously a lot of work. Yeah. And, you know, and you have to f figure out a way to do it. Because some bands, they try to write in English, but uh, maybe without the proper grounding in the language. And so the lyrics come out a little bit clunky or whatever. Still admirable that they do it. I mean, to be able to write lyrics in a foreign language is an amazing accomplishment on its own. Yeah, that's, I, that's wild. I've never even heard of that, like two versions of the, of the same album. I don't know of other bands that do it. Mm. Um, they, they've only done it on the past uh, th three or four albums. The, that they've asked me to come and do it with them. But I think it's, you know, it's an innovative approach. Uh, and I think it comes from the fact that, you know, they want, because their songs are political, uh, not, not overtly political, but uh, they do uh, explore Taiwanese culture, Taiwanese identity uh, through, their, through their stories of folklore and, you know, gods and goddesses and things like that. Uh, so in, in an indirect way, they are political. And they obviously, uh, Freddie being a politician and a Taiwanese independence advocate, a very vocal one, and working with Amnesty International, as he does. He's the leader of the Asian chapter of that. Uh, he wants to get his message across to the broadest base possible, and that's the way to do it. Another way, of course, I mean, you could release translations just in the liner notes. You can mm. sing in Taiwanese. And just have in the liner notes, these are this is what we're saying, so people can follow along. I think that's viable too. And if you can expose people to, like, say, like the Taiwanese language, maybe they'll learn to sing along with you in in your language. Yeah, you don't have to meet them on their terms. You can bring them to you to your culture. I think that, in a way, would be more valuable. And sort of similarly, being from New York, you kind of take for granted that every single tour comes through New York City. Um, one thing I've been sort of like privy to out here is that sometimes you actually have to travel to another country if there's going to be a tour coming through Asia. Um, like a month and a half ago, uh, Judge came through. Yeah, uh, they didn't come here though. Uh, so that's what I was going to ask. Singapore, like, they came to. Okay, yeah. Jakarta, they played. Jakarta, yeah. Huge hardcore scenes there. So yeah, they didn't, they didn't come here, unfortunately. So I was going to ask like, uh, how often do you like what's the most re the nearest city you would have to travel to if you're uh hong kong would be the nearest uh, I guess. okay um or tokyo maybe but, you know like nothing's that far off tokyo's like a three-hour flight i mean bangkok's a three-hour three three and a half hour flight the good thing about taiwan is it's kind of in the middle yeah. of all these major centers and it's of course is a major center itself and a lot more bands actually come here than used to like when i first got here in 2005 metal bands coming here were rare, like from overseas. It was a very rare thing, and it was just starting to become a destination because uh, 
Thonic basically where we're starting to invite bands that they had toured with like overseas, like saying, hey, please come here. Like, yeah. let's, let's get this going. Now there's like, you know, several bands here. It's not New York. It's not like every weekend there's a foreign, like there's a touring band right. coming through. Almost every night, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I mean every night you can go out. Yeah, exactly. Every night you can go out here and see bands, but in terms of foreign bands, yeah. uh, it's still like, it's the same as, you know, the backpacker trail. Taiwan's not on it because it's, you know, right. it's an island and it's not Thailand where you've got, you know, amazing beaches an hour out of Bangkok right. or th something like well, that. Well, it's cheap. It's not and as it's not, cheap. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's not as cheap. And the tourism market here is is mm, somewhat subpar mm. compared to other, other places. And it was the same with bands as well, but it's, it's starting to get better. But, you know, let's say once a month okay. in terms of metal, there's a band coming. From so, and maybe not a huge band, but you know, a band from Japan, a band from Thailand, a band from you know, now, now bands from China can come over here too if they want to. Um, so it's it's getting it's getting more, but it's it's uh it's grown by leaps and bounds in the decade plus that I've been here. But it's still got a long way to go. It's still a small scene here. It's got room to it's got room to grow. Okay. How far are we from the nearest toilet? Uh, we It's right there. Okay, I'll keep on plugging for a bit. No worries. I'm not even going to cut that. Sorry, folks. Um, your most recent novel. Am I, and thank you for giving me a copy here. I'll tell you that whenever I've had an author on, uh, even from the road, I'll do a giveaway mm. so that I think it's available on Amazon. Yeah. It's easy for me to, I'll, people will know it already because they'll hear it in the intro, but... Um, it's easy for me from the road to, to do a giveaway like through Amazon. I could just have it shipped directly to people, even though, you know, probably less money goes directly to your pocket that way. Um, but it's essentially, am I correct in thinking that it's a fictional tale that's heavily based on like the actual experiences that you've seen and witnessed here in the, the punk scene in Taipei? No, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, it just came out in, uh, that was 2017, last year. And I wrote it after, you know, being involved in the scene here for over 10 years, playing in bands and going to shows, you know, on a weekly basis, going, sometimes going to a few shows a week and either playing myself or just going to watch. And yeah, it's, I decided I wanted to write something about the scene here and kind of expose uh, the culture, the punk metal underground culture here to a wider audience. And also to hopefully through getting the book out there into different markets, uh, getting, introducing people to Taiwan itself mm. because a lot of people don't, still don't know a lot about this place. Yeah, definitely. It's still very kind of off the radar for most people in the West, at least. So I started writing about this band and kind of, you know, making composite characters based on people I'd met here and writing a story of what it's like being an underground band here, struggling to define yourself in a culture where it's very straight-laced and it's very difficult to be, you know, anything that's considered the other. You're, mm. you're, you're, everybody's supposed to blend in. Everybody is supposed to do the right thing. Everybody is supposed to go after a job that's safe. And, you know, that's, it's not so different in other parts of the world. It's just far more pronounced here, uh, there's a lot of pressure put on kids from a very young age to be the best, to, to get straight A's, to get that good, steady job so you can provide for your parents. 
But you know, what if you're a kid like me here? What if you're a kid that discovers heavy music? What if you're a kid that uh, says, you know what? I can't work in an office. I don't want to. I don't want to fit in. I want to be myself. I want to express the thoughts that are pinballing around in my head. If I don't let them out, I'm going to explode. So I wanted to write about those people because, you know, there's a lot of people here that I met that were, although they grew up thousands of kilometers from where I grew up, there was a lot of similarities between like their story and my story. You know, mm. they, they discovered the music at a young age. There was something in it that they could relate to. Uh, there was some anger or some frustration inside of them that the music appealed to and they could use the music as a conduit, as a way to express their thoughts and their feelings, be they political, be they social, or just be they just an eruption of emotion that they just needed to get out so they didn't go crazy. So I wanted to tell that story within the context of the culture here, and I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, familiar enough with it uh, or I could do it justice because, you know, I'm a white dude from the prairies of Canada. Like, I don't, I didn't grow up here. I don't know what it's like to be Taiwanese. But, you know, I was heavily involved in the scene here for a, over a decade before I sat down to write it. I, I've been with my wife now for over 10 years, so I've been in, like, in a Taiwanese family, basically. Um, I'm very involved, you know, like we, we meet up with her in-laws all the time. All my bandmates were Taiwanese, and I would pester them with questions constantly over the past decade, asking them, like, okay, like, what does it mean? Like, if you're, if you're a punk here, like, what does that mean to your parents? What, is, mm. what does it mean if you get tattoos? What does it mean if you're blasting this crazy Western music that's full of rage and full of, you know, negativity, for lack of a better term, and trying to understand what it's about? So, you know, once I thought I had a decent handle on that, then I thought, okay, maybe... I'm justified in uh, putting pen to paper, even though I'm not Taiwanese. It's a, it's a t tough subject, I guess, to you know, be, not be from here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Not be Taiwanese, but to be writing Taiwanese characters. But the Taiwanese people that have read it have basically told me, yeah, I mean, like, we were surprised you're a foreigner. Like, we're surprised that you got it, that you were able to know it so well. So, I mean, I, that was, I felt vindicated People when I heard can, things like that. It's the same thing probably with why you like certain music, man. Like, people can sense authenticity. I think that's why, like, if you hear, you know, the, the pop music here is freaking terrible. No, it is. I'm sorry. It's like, awful. The, no but, apology necessary. Yeah, but, I mean, it's the same in the States. Like, uh, I don't know. Sorry, Katy Perry. But you're not listening to that song and being like, wow, she wrote some heartfelt lyrics. No, yeah. like, a machine wrote that song you, for Katie, her. Katy Perry. Right, right, exactly. I feel you. A machine wrote that. Uh, you're someone a firework. Wrote that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a firework, too. But it's a, it's a strange uh, maybe analogy or connection to say that if it's good and it's authentic and it's written with heart, like people will interpret it as such. Yeah. Um, all right, man. We're at like an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, is there a central place where people can find uh, the book? Like you, you, we talked about some awesome subjects. Um, like how can people find the articles you've written? Like plug your stuff. 
Uh, Amazon.com would be the best place to find the book. Yeah, it's uh, Busan Busu, not three, not four. I go by J.W. Henley on there. So yeah, Amazon would probably be the most convenient place for people to get that. For my articles, I put everything up on my website, jwhenley.com, J-W-H-E-N-L-E-Y.com. So that's where all my stuff's at. And for uh, people know this, but check the notes for this episode and you'll see the clickable hyperlinks for all that stuff. Joe, thank you, man. This is awesome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, appreciate you. Cheers. All right, folks, that is a wrap on episode number 91 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Many thanks to Joe for coming on the podcast today. Please make sure that you go to the show notes for this episode so that you can find links to all of the projects that Joe is currently working on and the things that he's done in the past. Don't forget, if you're interested, uh, shoot me an email at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com and I'll see if I can get you a book. You can also find the link to Patreon in the show notes for this episode. Otherwise, folks, thanks for listening. Check us out next time. And as always, please take care of each other. Mm-hmm.